Lord God, holy and gracious Heavenly Father, indeed you have done great things for us that we did not deserve. That while we were still sinners, while we were fleeing from you, going the other way, seeking our own pursuits and desires and loves and idols, that you saved us, that you sought us while we were not only strangers, but while we were your enemies. And you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross in penalty for those sins that we had committed. For he took our sins in death and gave to us his righteousness and the hope of eternal life in him. Lord, we thank you that we can trust and worship such a great and wonderful God through what such a great and wonderful shepherd has done for us lost sheep. And so we pray today as we come before you that you would humble us before your word and teach us and change us and convict us and grow us to be more and more like the shepherd, but also more and more dependent on the shepherd every day. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Zoe Community Church. In case you don't know me or you're, you're new here, my name is James. I'm one of the pastors here. And let's open up our Bibles to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 5. It's one of the last bi- books of the Bible, just a few pages back from Revelation. Now, if you're visiting, we're glad you're here. Just to tell you a little bit about Zoe, we usually work our way through books of the Bible. We preach chapter by chapter, verse by verse, sometimes word by word. But right now we're taking a break from our current two-year, two-and-a-half-year series through First and Second Samuel, and we're doing a short mini-series about the metaphors of the church, the images that God has provided to show us what the church is like. Now, I'm one of those people who grew up thinking that I didn't have a very interesting salvation testimony, right? When you grow up in the church, some of you can identify, I'm a pastor's grandkid on both sides. And made a profession of faith at the age of four. And so I wasn't really leaving a lifestyle behind of sin and debauchery. My parents might disagree, but I'm not sure. As I came to realize later, though, that doesn't mean you won't stray. You see, the church I grew up in had a lot of trouble retaining college-aged students, as I think a lot of churches do, especially for those who grew up in the church. These kids would graduate high school and move away, not just for school, but oftentimes away from their faith altogether. So in high school, what... The counselors and leaders and advisors and pastors would constantly tell us as high schoolers over and over again is that college is where you either sink or swim. College is where you sink or swim. And they keep driving that home, that point home. They want to ingrain in us, I think, uh, the need and the desire to fight the good fight, right? And to keep the faith, even as we left our home and our home church and went out into the world independently for the first time. But as I neared the end of high school, my mind shift actually shifted the other way. I thought to myself, maybe I don't want to swim. Because I started thinking, you know, if both my grandfathers had been as devout leaders of any other religion you could name, then wouldn't I just be as devout that religion? Just as committed a Muslim or a Buddhist or whatever it might be. Isn't my faith just a product of my upbringing? Because having grown up in the church, I knew all the Bible answers. I knew how to make my prayers sound good. I did Awana and Bible drill and youth choir, all those things that make a church kid good, right? I was a goody two-shoes, I'll admit it. But my inner struggle was something that all my pastors and leaders and even my parents at the time were unaware of. I'm going to read for you something that I wrote down 20 years ago after my first year in college. 
During my senior year in high school, even while I was a high school youth group president, I began to flounder in my faith. I began to wonder if I would have become a Christian if I had not been brought to church since I was in the womb. And while I hypocritically served and led, there were weeks at a time where I wouldn't even crack open my Bible. My prayer life went to pieces, and while I had a lot of fun in youth group, I experienced hardly any personal spiritual growth. I finally told myself that I'd stick it out for the rest of the year and was eager for college so that I could be free. This is still me writing. I decided that going to college would be a personal rebirth. I was not only trying to get away from home, but I was also trying to run away from the familiarity and routine of church and Christianity. College would be my refuge away from home, away from God. In high school, everyone always tells you that college is where, in terms of your faith, you either sink or swim. I went to college prepared to sink. I wanted to explore what the world had to offer, to see what I'd been missing out on in my sheltered Christian childhood. For the first time in my life, I would be on my own, and I wanted to be on my own spiritually also. End quote. Now, for the parents of youth-age children here, particularly the good ones, hearing this testimony is probably your worst nightmare. It might scare you because this is your kid. It may be your kid. For some of you, your kids are grown, and you know this story very well. You pray for your wayward child every day. You wonder where things went wrong or what you could have done differently. But it's not you. It's in every human heart. We are all prone to wander. We want freedom to explore and to exert our own agency and truly live, right? We get curious, and that curiosity lives to leads to getting covetous. We become uh, covetous, always wondering what's on the other side. What could I have? What do they have? What great pleasures am I missing out on that I can try if I just dabble over there or go over here? Left to our own devices, we will always stray because the heart wants what it wants. And we're told that following our heart is a good thing. Or we follow the crowd or the world or conventional wisdom because that's what everybody is doing. Or we follow our idols, this vision we have of this evasive oasis that we don't know until we get there was actually just a mirage all along. We follow all sorts of things. The metaphor of the church we are looking at today is that the church is a flock. In particular, a flock of sheep. We'll be jumping around the Bible a bit today, but we're going to start here in 1 Peter chapter 5. Let me read for you verses 1 through 4. 1 Peter 5. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. This is the word of God. The epistle of First Peter was addressed to make its rounds through a number of Christian churches that were dispersed or scattered throughout Asia Minor. And to all and each of these congregations who would read this letter, Paul has a message for their leaders. He, Peter, exhorts them to shepherd the flock of God that is among you. That is, a local church he considers a part of God's flock, and the elders there over that church have the responsibility to shepherd that flock. 
And so today we'll break down this shepherding imagery into three parts to understand how it applies to us and what it means for us today. We're going to look at three roles, three roles in the shepherding metaphor that reveals to us God's design for his church. Three roles about shepherding that reveal to us God's intent for the people of God. So let's get into it. The first role, of course, is the flock itself, the sheep, the sheep. And what we'll see from studying sheep is that God's design for the church is that we, individually and collectively, need him. Being sheep shows us our need for God. Now, here's the thing about metaphors and analogies, is they can be really helpful and useful to help explain some difficult-to-understand things, provided that you understand the simpler thing that they're trying to talk about. It's like if you try to explain quantum mechanics to me in sports metaphors. Could be helpful for a lot of you, but if I don't know sports metaphors, which I, I don't really understand sports too well, then it won't help. And I'm afraid that the case, uh, this is the case for us today. We're at a disadvantage looking at a metaphor for shepherding because none of us are shepherds, right? We don't live in that agricultural society. Now, I know most of you are transplants to Texas, and so you're probably closer to that more than you've ever been in your life right now. In fact, I know Texas A&M offers a major in animal-slash-livestock husbandry, uh, I remember when Steph and I first moved out here in that first year. Some of you, one of you, I don't see you in the room. Someone in the church laughed at us because we were so amazed you could just see cows and horses on the side of the road. But if Peter calls us the flock of God twice here in this passage, to get this metaphor, we need to first understand about sheep. So to start off, I bet there's one verse that you all know that comes to mind when I pose this idea that we are like sheep, right? All we like sheep have gone astray. You know it, Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. So you know that. Now, if you're new to church and you don't know that, that's simply the pervasive biblical view of sheep. They just go astray. It's what they do. Psalm 119, the longest psalm uh, in the book, ends with a lament, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. The New Testament describes the Christian prior to salvation, for you were straying like sheep. Jesus himself told a parable where the entire story was finding a lost sheep. It's characteristic of sheep to wander and get lost. In fact, sheep don't seem to have a sense of direction. They can get lost within walking distance of home. Other animals have innate navigational abilities like monarch butterflies and bees, Others have homing instincts like salmon and, and pigeons, or others simply have directional awareness as some humans, most humans do. Sheep seem to be lacking all of these. Left to their own devices, sheep are easily lost. Not only that, but domesticated sheep are also particularly vulnerable. They have no natural defense mechanism, which basically makes them the ideal prey. They don't kick or claw or bite, and when attacked, they might flee sometimes, but they've actually been known also to stick around obliviously while other members of their flock were being attacked, and they would just stand there not knowing the danger or that they were probably next. Ezekiel 34, 8 rightly calls sheep food for all the wild beasts. And you look at scripture, and the, the predators for the sheep are wolves and bears and lions. You'll remember David when he was talking to King Saul about wanting to defeat Goliath, he says, when I was a shepherd, I, I took on these bears and lions and protected the sheep. Now, not only do sheep have predators galore, but they're also a threat to themselves as well. 
There's a reason that Jesus can ask the Pharisees in Matthew 12, which of you has a sheep if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath will not lift it out? And they go, yeah, they feel personally attacked because that happens. Sheep fall into pits. I don't know about you, but if I'm scrolling through social media or YouTube and I'm in private on my own, I rarely ever laugh out loud. I see a lot of funny stuff. I just don't react if I'm alone. But there was one viral video I saw about a month ago that made me burst out laughing. And it's not going to be the same with me telling you the story, but we don't show things in here. It's not what we do. So I'm going to try to paint this picture. It's a, this video. Have you seen the video of the, the lamb stuck in a ditch? Anyone? All right, just Google it later. It's like a Russian lamb in a trench or something. All right, there's this video from Russia where a boy finds a lamb stuck in this dirt trench running parallel to the side of the road. The trench is probably two or three feet deep. It's just wide enough for the lamb to be stuck in with his head below the surface. And the boy, being the nice, considerate, sweet boy he is, decides to get down there, take off his belt, and try to get the lamb out of the ditch. So he wraps his belt around one of the hind legs of the lamb, gets out of the ditch, tries to, to try to pull it up by this hind leg. And the lamb's coming out with his butt first. He's trying to claw at the side of the, of, the, of the trench, trying to climb out. And finally... He gets out of the trench. The boy rescues the lamb, saves the day. So what happens next? The lamb shakes itself off, and as lambs do, he doesn't want to stick around, bounds off into the distance, you know, just bounding happily down the road, and suddenly it decides to just take this one giant flying leap, and it plops headfirst back into the ditch farther along. And it's hilarious. So maybe that says something about me. But it also says something about sheep. Sheep may be their own biggest threat. In fact, when they are injured, they often die rather than recover. That's why a shepherd has to keep his eye on them at all times. I read this week that when you find a sheep on its back, kind of like a turtle, which apparently happens a lot in the winter because their, their fleece gets waterlogged and they get top-heavy, they'll fall over on their back, they won't be able to get back up, and they'll just lie there and die. Sheep are vulnerable to predators and to themselves. And lastly, sheep are followers. Sheep are known to follow anything. They follow horses, cows, goats, and of course humans, but most of all, other sheep. They'll be in a flock, in a herd, and one sheep will just veer off this way and the rest will go, oh, I guess we're just going this way now, and they'll go the other way, and one can just lead the other because sheep are followers. That's why they were one of the first domesticated species in history, because humans realized we could use this natural inclination of theirs to our advantage. And now domesticated sheep can only survive by following. Sheep themselves are unable to forage or find their own food or water. They don't ever actually search for greener pastures on their own. In fact, once the grass in their area is all consumed, they'll happily eat the stubble that remains. And then the dirt or whatever else is in there when they're done, they won't come home by themselves either. They are fully dependent on a shepherd to guide them to a source of food, to water, and back home. Look, this picture of sheep isn't flattering. The Bible calling us a flock seems borderline insulting to insinuate that we are sheep. But the Bible isn't insulting us. It's showing us the reality of our need. You see, in shepherding, one party has needs, the other party meets them. One is helpless, the other supports. One is hungry, the other feeds. One is injured, the other nurses. It's that story over and of dependence on the one side 
and provision on the other. That's the picture of sheep and shepherding. And so whenever the Bible calls us a flock, it always illustrates our need for leadership. It's telling us this truth, as the Bible does tell us the truth, that we are dependent, needy people. And to think or act otherwise is simply denial. We might want to believe we are independent when we are simply being rebellious. We might value being free thinkers when behind that facade we're actually just idolaters. We might glorify ambitious trailblazers, which is a funny way to say that we are just a prideful and self-interested, self-consumed people. You see, the hard truth is, by nature, we are all wanderers who go our own way. And the bottom line is this. Sheep are either led or dead. Sheep are either led or dead. We are prone to stray and sin and left to our own devices. We are ruined. That's what the Bible says. Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. So here's the thing. Lest we be insulted and bristle inside at the idea that we are being called sheep, what we actually should do is stop here and realize that from a biblical perspective, being dependent is not a character flaw. It's God's design. I'll say it again. Our dependence is not a character flaw. It's God's design. God's finger didn't slip on the controller when he was customizing our character and accidentally max out our neediness slider. Our dependence on God is not a shameful deficiency, but an intentional God-glorifying testimony. Because hear this, our dependence on God is not a result of the fall. Our needing God is not because of the original sin. It's not part of brokenness that entered the world when Adam and Eve ate the fruit. They were not independent from God prior to that. No, God's rightful authority over us and the abundance of his loving provision for all creation were established from the get-go, from the beginning. God created everything man needed. He gave him every plant for food. He gave him every animal for dominion. A mist came out of the ground to water the earth. He gave a wife for companionship. This was God's perfect, good design, as he called it. God himself made and gave everything that man needed. Man made none of that for himself, and it was truly good. It's on the basis of creation that we belong to God. In fact, Psalm 100 calls us God's people. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture, right? What's the basis of that in Psalm 100? For the Lord our God, it is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture, because he made us, and we are his. On the basis of creation alone, that makes God the shepherd, and we his sheep. It's his breath of life in us. It's his hand that upholds us. The point is, we are not God. He is God, and we are not. We are created, finite, dependent creatures. It's who we are. It's who he made us to be. That apart from him, we would be utterly dependent and lost, helpless. This was God's design because our dependence puts God's goodness and kindness on full display. Our neediness makes God look greater. And it is a blessing to be led by him. It is a blessing because we can't do it ourselves. And in this way, God receives all the glory. Now there's a warning here before we move on. 
don't forget what you are. Take this opportunity to soberly consider yourself and your neediness and place yourself squarely in the hands of God. Don't stray from even this truth. Because what happens when a sheep forgets that it's a sheep? If you don't think you are, don't want to admit it, then you won't think you need the church. There's no flock to be a part of. There's no authority to submit to. You don't need to be taught. You don't need to be sought after and found and rescued. You don't need God if you're not a sheep. On the other hand, when you realize you are, you know you need the church. When you realize you're a sheep, you know how much you need a shepherd. You can't live without one. You know you need to be here because if the church is God's flock, we're not meant to go it alone. The point of the metaphor is the need for leadership. In fact, we need a leader, a protector, a guide, and a provider. And we just have to realize that. And let go of all we're trying to do for ourselves and everything that we're trying to pursue. And this leads us to the second point. The second role to look at is that of the shepherd. Namely, the chief shepherd, the Lord himself. And what this shows us is that God's desire is to lead his people. So first, God's design was that we are needy, and now God's desire is to lead us and to meet our needs and be our provider. Back in 1 Peter 5, verse 2 is clear. It says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. He's not telling the elders, shepherd your flock, that group you brought together and attracted here. It's God's flock. Shepherd the flock of God that he's entrusted to you for this time. God's people who he has sought and saved in Christ, not who you brought in. And in verse 4, Christ Jesus himself is called the chief shepherd. You see, God has always been a shepherd. I'm going to take you through some text really quickly. You don't have to turn there. But for example, during the exile, the Old Testament, prophets foretold that God would deliver a remnant of his people, saying that God would gather them, quote, as a shepherd keeps his flock. It's Jeremiah 31. Or Micah 2, I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture. The Psalms also praise God as a shepherd. You all know Psalm 23, which was our scripture reading. In Psalm 28, they also praise God as the shepherd who saves his people and carries them forever. I'm looking forward to eternity. Prophets like Isaiah await the time when, quote, the Lord God will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. If you want to read an incredibly a really incredible passage later about God promising to shepherd his people, read all of Ezekiel 34 when you have time. Ezekiel 34. In Ezekiel 34, God promises to search for his sheep and rescue them from all their scattered places, to feed them with good pasture, to banish all wild beasts from the land so that his sheep might dwell securely and no longer be afraid. And there's still more. Let me read a few verses out of Ezekiel 34. God says, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God with them, and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord God, and you are my sheep, human sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the Lord God. It goes on. 
Ezekiel 34, the prophecy there is super specific. He says he will set over the sheep one shepherd, and that shepherd will be his servant, David. David, he calls their shepherd prince. And as prophecy, we know this is not talking about King David, who we've been studying in 1 Samuel. It's the the king that David represents and comes before and foreshadows. The one to come from the royal line of King David, the son of David, the true and eternal king. You know who I'm talking about. The shepherd prince is Jesus Christ himself. And in Ezekiel 34, he says that. He will place David as the shepherd over his people. You guys remember in the Christmas story how Herod, King Herod realized that Jesus' birth was significant? You remember Pastor Jesse was in a, a pageant when he was younger, and his line as King Herod was, bring me my chief priests and scribes. Those chief priests and scribes came, and they told King Herod, Micah 5. This is all recorded in Matthew 2. In Micah 5, they tell King Herod from there that out of Bethlehem in Judah, there will come a ruler who will shepherd God's people, Israel. Jesus is foretold as the ultimate saving shepherd, Messiah. And then Jesus comes along, and now we're in the New Testament, and we see that he continues and fulfills this idea that God wants to lead his people, but now in him. Jesus looked at his followers, for example. In Mark 6, he looks out at this crowd that is gathered as he gets off of a boat. There's a crowd gathered on the hillside, and he has compassion on them because, quote, they were like sheep without a shepherd. He sees these spiritually lost and wandering people, and Jesus wants to shepherd them. Turn with me to John 10. John chapter 10. Excuse me, it's the fourth book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Now, Jesus used the shepherding terminology of himself multiple times. In one place, Jesus says that he comes to seek the lost sheep of Israel. And famously, he also said that he came to seek and save the lost, which is shepherding imagery, out of Ezekiel 34. But he's never more explicit about this than in John 10. If you're there, we'll begin in verse 14. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. These are the words of Christ. He calls himself the good shepherd. What makes him the good shepherd? There's a phrase repeated four times in this text, five times in the verses surrounding. He lays down his life for the sheep. Lays down his life. That's what makes this shepherd good. He was foretelling his death on the cross. And not just for the nation of Israel, the Jews, but for the Gentiles too. That's what he meant in verse 16 when he said, there were other sheep not of this fold. Jesus is the good shepherd because he cares so much for his sheep that he would even die. And that is the good news of the gospel because how can a shepherd die for his sheep? How can a God die for his people? 
I had a Jehovah's Witness neighbor ask me that once since they denied the deity of Christ. How can you believe that a God would die for people? If you haven't heard the gospel, the answer is this. We are all sinners, rebels against God, going our own way against his perfect righteous law and having broken God's law, we all deserve the death penalty, the spiritual death penalty. The sentence that hangs over us is eternal death and separation from God, and none of us can make it right for ourselves or anyone else. And no one else can make it right for us. Anyone who died would simply be dying as a result of his own sin, paying those wages of sin that is death. So we needed someone who had no debt. Someone who didn't owe anything for his sin. Someone who wasn't a sinner. Someone who hadn't broken the law. Someone who wasn't just human. And that's where God comes in. God comes to us. He came in the person of Jesus Christ, in the form of human flesh, to be someone fully human, but more than human at the same time. God and man in one person, mysteriously. Jesus Christ. A man who could die for others, because he was God. A God who would die for others because he was man. Jesus lived a sinless life, a perfect life, the only life ever that did not deserve death. And here in John 10, he says again and again, I lay down my life for the sheep. And verse 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. And so Christ willingly laid down his life for us on the cross where he hung and suffered for all of our sins, taking our penalty upon himself. The record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands were nailed with him to the cross. And in taking our death, he gives to us his life, his perfect righteous life and clothes us in it. That when God sees us, he now sees the perfection of his son, Jesus Christ. Verse 10, the thief comes only to kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. You see, because Jesus didn't stay dead like any other man. He took up his life again, as we said here. And God gave to Jesus the authority and power to promise resurrection life to all who would believe. That as our risen Savior, our present and eternal shepherd, Christ continues to protect, guide, provide for, and comfort his people. We now permanently belong to Jesus. Look down at verse 26, still in John 10. He says, But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So the good news, brothers and sisters, is that for we who are in Christ, no sin, no trial, no temptation, not even Satan himself can snatch us out of the hand of our good shepherd. He will keep us forever as our eternal shepherd. Now there's two final chronological appearances in scripture of the flock metaphor. First, Matthew 25, Jesus paints a picture of the final judgment where he, seated on the throne in all his glory, will be presented before him all the nations of the world, all the peoples of the world. They'll be summoned before the throne, and this shepherd on the throne will act to separate the sheep from the goats, the sheep to his right hand, the goats to his left hand. And the shepherd king will say to those on his right, the sheep 
he will say, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Jesus Christ, the eternal shepherd, will once and for all bring in his sheep permanently into his fold. And then, the last reference, in the final book of the Bible, Revelation 7.17, we get a glimpse into heaven. And there we see this. The Lamb, that's Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain, the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Brothers and sisters, understand that God's desire is to lead his people and shepherd them forever. It has always been from the Old Testament Israel until now with the church and forevermore. God wants his people to follow him. He wants to lead us and he has done everything so that we can. God's design and desire all along is that he would lead us. And he designed it this way so that the good news of the gospel is the good news of the good shepherd. God made us weak so he could be shown to be strong. God made us needy so he could receive glory as the provider. In our sin, we have become wretched and blind, naked and poor, and God redeems all of these things as our shepherd. We are wretched, but he turns our mourning to dancing. We are blind, but he gives the blind sight. We are naked, but he clothes us in righteousness. We are poor, but he has granted us immeasurable riches that are in Christ Jesus. We are pitiful, but the loving shepherd has shown us compassion. Look, if you aren't a Christian, or you don't know if, you're, if you are, you are the straying sheep that God wants to bring back into his fold today. God knows you and loves you. He is seeking for you, and he has already provided the way back for your return today. And all you need to do is believe that this is true. That this is true of you and who you are. It is true of God and what he's done, and it's true that you need it. And he's done it for you. Believe and confess your sins to him. Repent and bring them to God for your full forgiveness. And then turn from those ways and turn to him. Submit to him. Trust in Jesus alone who died to pay for your sins. And give you his eternal life. And submit your life to him forevermore. To this loving shepherd all the days of your life. And you will be saved. That is the good news of the gospel. Jesus is our good shepherd. Praise the Lord. Well, that's it, right? We can't get any deeper or truer or bigger than that. We could close in prayer, but there's a third point, and it is intensely practical. The third role is that of under-shepherds. The under-shepherds. And this is the idea of elders. And this is God's definition for the local church. We saw God's um, his desire, his design, sorry, and then his desire, and now his definition. The definition for how the local church is to be. Let's turn back to 1 Peter 5. What is church leadership supposed to look like? His definition for the local church is that elders are to lead as his under-shepherds. Let's take another quick pass through Israel's history, okay? You'll see that not only did God want to shepherd his people all along, but also he provided human shepherds almost every step of the way. For example, when God first led Israel out of Egypt and delivered them out of slavery, he did so with Moses and Aaron, right, leading them out. And the Bible says they were led out, this is Psalm 77 and 78, quote, like a flock, like sheep guided safely through the wilderness. Moses and Aaron were their shepherds. Moses is succeeded by Joshua, after whom comes the judges to rule Israel. 
And at the time of Samuel, it switches over from judges to kings ruling Israel. And interestingly, all of these humans, Moses, Joshua, the judges, and the kings, all of these people are explicitly called by God in Scripture, the shepherds of my people Israel. You see this in various Old Testament texts, that God always designated human leaders as the shepherds of his flock. In the same way now, in the church age, God has defined that under-shepherds lead his flock. Let's look back at verse 1 of 1 Peter 5. He says, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. First, Peter acknowledges that we're in this in-between phase. Christ has come, and they have seen his glory, but now Christ has also ascended into heaven, and we await his return. He mentions this in verse 4 also, when the chief shepherd appears, right? That is to come. So now while we are awaiting the return of Christ, the good shepherd, Peter, the elder, exhorts the local church elders to fulfill their role in doing what? Shepherding God's flock. That is, God is continuing for now to shepherd his chosen people, the church, through human shepherds, as he always has done. This is God's gracious gift. That church eldership is how God leads his sheep today. Now, we need to stop here and clarify some of the biblical terminology surrounding elders and pastoring and all of that because differences in Bible interpretation have led to vastly different applications, which is why different denominations have different um, uh, church leadership structures or church polity. I mean, you've seen it all. You have senior pastors, you have elder boards, you have elders over pastors, pastors over elders, popes, bishops, parishes. So to put it all out there at the start, we believe biblically that elder, overseer, and pastor are all the same function, that these terms are interchangeable, and that one person can be at once and should be all of these three things. I'll try to walk you through this biblically. Start with today's metaphor of shepherding, right? The English word pastor comes from the Latin word pastor, spelled the same way, which means to shepherd. Shepherding is pastoring. You might even hear how the word pastor sounds like pasture or tacos al pastor, which originally was lamb, but now is pork. Pastoring is shepherding. It's the same meaning. And then at the very end of verse 2 comes the shepherd's main role. Right? Everything that follows that in verse, in verse 2 and 3 is, is underneath that main role. What's the main role? Exercising oversight. Exercising oversight or to oversee. The Greek word here is episkopeo, and the translation here is pretty literal. Epi means on or over, and skopeo, like scope, you hear that, means to look or see. So literally, oversight, supervision. And episcope is the word that we find in 1 Timothy 3, which is the qualifications for overseers passage. That is, Paul labels the overseer as an official role or title in church leadership, so this shepherd or pastor who is over the church has the primary responsibility of oversight or being the overseer at the same time. And so you ask, well, we have elders here at Zoe. Where does that fit in? Well, Titus 1 lists the qualifications of elders, which is very similar to Paul's qualifications for overseers. And in fact, in Titus 1, it aligns those two terms, elder and overseer, because Paul tells Titus that while he's in Crete, he left him behind there to appoint elders in every town over the church, right? He says, appoint elders, and he says, and look for such and such types of people because overseers are, overseers are supposed to be this way. 
He uses the terms interchangeably. Appoint elders and look for these guys because that's how overseers are supposed to be. He uses the terms interchangeably. And of course, all three are also here in 1 Peter 5. You see Peter first addresses the elders in verse 1. He commands them to shepherd or pastor at the beginning of verse 2 with the responsibility of overseeing at the end of verse 2. All three terms are there. You'll see the same things in Acts Acts chapter 20 uh, if you want to study on your own. There are multiple passages that use these three terms interchangeably. And so we do the same here. We believe those are the same role. Okay, so now we've got our terms straight. Let's just talk quickly about what these elders are supposed to do. How are they supposed to lead the flock and oversee the church? Well, Ephesians 4 aligns the role with a responsibility. Ephesians 4.11 says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. This passage is talking about how God in Christ gave different gifts for distinct roles within the church at various times. First, there were the apostles and prophets who laid the foundation and then the evangelists to spread the good news and the shepherds and teachers. Now, even though your Bible in Ephesians 4.11 says shepherds and teachers, grammatically, these two should be considered together as a compound role. He's saying the shepherd teachers. It's a single ministry gifting in which shepherding is teaching. And this shepherd teaching has the goal of growing a church and equipping the people for ministry. We shepherd by teaching because a shepherd feeds the sheep. You know, earlier I mentioned the time that Jesus miraculously fed the 5,000. But do you remember what he did before he fed them? Before he prayed, before he sat them down, when he first looked at them on that hillside and saw all these sheep without a shepherd, what was the first thing he did? Do you remember? Mark 6, 34. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Jesus, the good shepherd, fed the lost and hungry sheep, but not with bread and fish, not first, at least. Man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. He saw that they were in need, and so out of his compassion, he taught them. He fed them with the word. Look, that's why at Zoe, God's word is the main thing. It's the peace that permeates all other areas of ministry. If the word isn't behind our evangelism, then that isn't evangelism. It's helping people feel better about themselves. If the word isn't behind our local outreach events, then that isn't outreach, that's community service. If the word isn't behind our prayers, then we ask wrongly to spend it on our passion. And James says that's why God doesn't answer. Our upcoming community group season will be about prayer, transforming prayer by feeding it with the Word. It'll be a valuable time for all of us. But speaking of community groups, there also, if the Word isn't behind our community groups, then that's just another social gathering. That's why at Zoe we want to be all about the Bible. Even in prayer meeting, we just pray through Scripture. People wonder if that's enough. Just be about the Bible. And we believe it is. We are convinced that we all have to gather, both sheep and shepherds alike, around the real food that is the Word of God. Our conviction as elders is to preach the Bible faithfully and only what's in the Bible, nothing more. We're not here to entertain. We're not here to make the church attractive to outsiders. 
We're not here to take political stances or stand on social soapboxes. We are not called to adapt to the culture or revolutionize it either. Now, some of these things can be good and effective. Some of those things are the work and responsibility of the church. Some of those those things are secondary. The solid foundation, the root of all those other things is a steady diet of the Word. Abiding in the words of Christ. Listening to and obeying what He says. That is our bedrock foundation. Now that's not to say that there isn't more to exercising oversight over the flock than just teaching. There is more. Paul warns the Ephesian elders that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. This is a warning to the elders that they are responsible for watching out for false teaching and, from protect, and, and to protect the flock from being misled by anyone. How many of you have been to the Fort Worth stockyards with your family? Most of you probably have. It's not too shy to raise your hand. How many of you have squeezed your adult selves onto that little kitty train with your children, the one that drives around the main street? Only me. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was hard. When we went uh, last year, Ezra was three years old, and he thought it was the greatest thing because he loves trains. But the coolest thing to me was that it actually goes off the main road and takes you through these uh, sheep tunnels. I didn't even know we're down there. The original sheep tunnels, which are closed to the public, actually. Only this little kitty train driver has a little garage remote that opens the gate into these sheep tunnels. So if you want to see this, you're going to have to pay $5 and take the little train. But you get in there, you're underground, it's concrete walls, concrete tunnels, terracotta tile floors. I don't even think it was that tall. It's just large enough for the train. I don't think I could have even stood up in there. It's actually quite eerie and, and dim and dark. And just knowing that sheep had once passed through here on the way to the slaughter. You see, back in the day, meat packers decided that to save money on trucking and transport, instead of bringing animals from the stockyards to the packing houses that were far away, they said, let's build the packing houses here. And so they built um, meat processing plants right across East Exchange Avenue. And so what would happen is, every day, up to 10,000 sheep per day would travel through these concrete tunnels that they dug and poured out to go directly from the stockyards to the meat processing plant. They would be slaughtered. And the question is, how do you get 10,000 sheep a day to cross the road? Well, they used what was appropriately called a Judas goat. A Judas goat. It was a goat that was trained to just cross the tunnel. And the flock would follow this goat to their death. They'd follow willingly because that's what sheep do. They are followers and they're easily led astray to their doom. That's why we need shepherds keep watch over our souls, to be vigilant. The image of a shepherd is the image of a watchman, like David when he watched the herds, or like the shepherds in uh, the, the first Christmas when they were watching their flocks by night. They were attentive and alert shepherds on the lookout for dangers and enemies. And that's what shepherds as elders are supposed to be doing for you as well. Now, there's so much more to shepherding we don't have time to get into today. I think I've explained what is important for now. You could read more in Ezekiel 34 about how shepherding the flock is not supposed to be just feeding and guarding the sheep, but also strengthening the weak, nursing the sick, binding up the injured, bringing back the strays, and seeking the lost. The goal in all of that is to help 
the church grow in Jesus Christ. Our goal is to help you all follow Jesus, know Jesus, love Jesus, worship Jesus, obey Jesus, that we are all about Him together. Now before we move on, we need to take a quick dive into what elders should look like. And you'll see why later. But it's so that we can recognize the good from the bad. Just as, the impor- just as important as the what to do is the how to do it. And 1 Peter 5 speaks directly to, ha- to the how of shepherding. Look at verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So real quick, just three contrasts here. First, under compulsion, not willingly. That is, the office of overseer or elder should be voluntary, should be taken by someone who has freely chosen to serve under no compulsion or motivation other than God's own motivation through the Holy Spirit. And definitely not under compulsion by money, which is the second contrast here, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. He should be excited about leadership for the right reasons. You don't need me to say this, but a pastor shouldn't have a multi-million dollar mansion and a private jet. God condemns the shepherds of Israel who turned aside for gain, saying they were without understanding. In contrast, Paul says he didn't covet anyone's silver or gold or clothing, but worked hard for his own needs. Kingdom work, shepherding work, is not to be a source of physical riches, but heavenly riches. And thirdly, verse 3 not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. That is, not being harsh, heavy-handed, authoritarian, or overbearing. Jesus himself recognized that the Gentile rulers lorded it over their people, meaning they forcefully dominated others as their subjects. But in contrast to the Gentiles, Jesus said, you are to be this way, whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even Jesus himself came not to be served, but to serve and to give of himself. So Christian leaders are to be marked with the Christ-like attributes of humility and love. Otherwise, when you see a leader who's emphasizing his own personal authority, he has become untethered from the authority given to him from God. And he has drifted off that solid foundation of the authority of God's word. So these are the things that we as elders need to watch for in ourselves and that you need to watch for in us and in other elders or wherever you go. Paul tells Timothy to keep a close watch not only on the teaching, but on himself. And that is the reason we have a plurality of elders at Zoe. We believe that this is the biblical model for eldership, that whenever elders appear in Scripture, it's always in the plural. And it's a way for the elders to watch over one another for moral accountability, to balance each other's weaknesses, to share responsibility according to our different giftings, and to learn to submit to one another in love. So what does that mean? What does all of this mean for us as a church? I mean, he's talking about the the, the shepherds, the elders, right? What does that have to do with me? Well, first, I think we all need to grow in these ways. This is not the time for you to check out and say, phew, I'm glad I'm not them. It is a high calling for us. But you're not absolved from growing in godliness as well. We all should be pursuing Christ-likeness. We all should seek to be above reproach in every way. And that said, if you are wanting to lead in the church, even in non-elder capacities, like being a deacon, a community group leader, a ministry team leader, or even just being a good friend and counselor and being hospitable to people, 
then you ought to be striving to grow in all these ways too. Second, and this goes back to the main point, understand what God has designed. God has made us to be sheep in need of godly biblical leadership, teaching, and care. And God designed the local church to be the place where that happens. So I ask you again to think about yourself. And just really think, what is my purpose for being a part of the church? Why am I here? Why are you part of this local flock? Maybe you're here because you know you should be, or it's the right thing to do. You're here because it fulfills your duty of church attendance, and you can check that off. Or maybe you're here because your friends are here, you like the community, you like the people, they're friendly. Or maybe you're here because you want to exert your influence in the church, to steer it a certain way. Maybe you have a certain agenda. Or maybe you're here just to serve and to give back what you can, that it's your time in life to just give back to the church, gift the church with your, your skill and your presence. Some of these are good, some of them not so good, but I just want you to think, what is your main thing? Why are you here? What is your main thing? Because the question is, is your main thing the church's main thing? And I've already told you what the church's main thing is. Because if being in a flock means recognizing your need for leadership, then you should be here to be led and fed and taught and trained and grow. And everything else falls under that. So I'll tell you right now, the elders of Zoe commit to the high calling of leading you toward greener pastures and still waters. The question is, are you willing to come along? Do you find us worthy of following, even of imitating? And now please remember this, the buck doesn't stop with us. We are also human. We will also fail and fall. The call to imitate us is only valid in so much as we are imitating someone else, and that is the shepherd. We are simply under shepherds. Imitate us as we imitate Christ. We will struggle and fail and fall. We will fail you. But even in that, we point to the abundant grace and forgiveness of Christ in the gospel because of what he has done. So we'll close here. Our hearts are prone to wander. All we like sheep have gone astray, just like I did while entering college. You know, by, by God's grace and his grace alone, I didn't end up going too far off the deep end. I do have some regrets and made some bad decisions and hang out with people I shouldn't have. But again, nothing too crazy by the grace of God. Because even while I was trying to sink, his hand was holding me afloat. I wasn't trying to swim, but he kept me from sinking. And he did that with the church. I moved away from home, moved to, to L.A., UCLA. And I got plugged into a church, a local flock of Christians where I was actually taught the Bible, and I learned God's way and grew in a way that I hadn't in 18 years. I was attending Grace Community Church under the teaching ministry of John MacArthur. I know many of you have been blessed by his ministry and grace to you. Many of you discovered expository preaching later in life as well. And I can look back and confidently say that having godly preachers and pastors and Bible study leaders who would teach me the Word of God and faithfully walk alongside me, pouring into my life, opening the Word to me daily, and actually shepherding me that's how God rescued me from going astray. We need the church. We need elders. And we need God. We need to be fed. We need to be led. And God wants to feed us and lead us. And he has done everything through Jesus Christ to make that possible, that we might come to him. He has sought us and found us and purchased us by the blood and sacrifice of his own son. And now on the basis of both creation and redemption, we are truly his people.
the sheep of his pasture. If you're looking for a church, either now or in the future, look for godly leadership. And while you're here, please pray for godly leadership. We need your prayers. And as you have been, submit to godly leadership. That is, follow us insofar, only insofar as we lead you in a Godward direction, according to God's word and God's will, not our own. This church is God's flock. Praise the Lord that he alone is the perfect and good shepherd. May God receive all the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus forevermore. Will you bow with me in prayer? Lord, we praise you and thank you for being such an awesomely consistent God throughout history, that from the beginning you were the provider. And all along the way, no matter how your people rebelled or turned against you, you provided shepherd after shepherd after shepherd. And you promised you would be the shepherd over and over and over again. That through Christ you made that all possible. That it was all fulfilled. That the great shepherd, the chief shepherd, came to purchase for himself your flock, both Jew and Gentile. And we praise you that we can be included in that as your people. We thank you for this church, this flock that you have brought together. And I don't believe that we have attracted the people in this room today, and I pray that would not be the case in the future, but that you brought people here because your word is being taught. We pray that that would continue, and we, we humbly ask, Lord, knowing that we are so fallible. And there's so many things vying for our attention, even things wanting to be, be said, maybe, that might not be the time and place here. We pray that you would give us wisdom to teach and to lead, to preach only the word and not go beyond it, but also to preach the entire word, that we would go through the whole council of Scripture together as your church, as long as you would have us together. We pray that you would be the leader, that we would all, both sheep and under-shepherds alike, submit to you. And Lord, take this church, guide us and use us as you will, submit us to your authority alone, and make us more like our shepherd. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.